Welcome to this second podcast in our series on data and cyber breaches, what we see as the new go-to mass claims for claimant lawyers. I'd like to introduce our panel today. My name is Jeff Nicholas, and with me, I have Julie Elmer from the US, Rachel Anir from the UK, and Jonathan Wong from Asia. In the first of our podcasts, we looked at the question of liability. Today, we're going to focus on the issue of damages, what may be recoverable, and how that could impact the question of whether claims can be brought by class or collective actions. So let me start with the primary pressure points. And let's look at it from a US standpoint, because I think we've probably had more cases and more developed law in this area so far in the US. Julie, do you want to kick off? In the U.S., the question of harm has loomed large in U.S. data privacy cases for years. Most data privacy cases in the U.S. are class actions that seek money damages. And as a result, they're litigated in federal courts in accordance with the Class Action Fairness Act, or CAFA. And this means that the plaintiff must establish that she suffered actual injury in fact in order to prove that she has standing, meaning that the court has jurisdiction to hear the claim. And there's a split among the U.S. Circuit Courts of Appeal regarding what constitutes an actual injury in fact in a data privacy action. So some appeals courts say that a heightened risk of identity theft is sufficient for the plaintiff to establish actual injury in fact. But others say that the plaintiff must allege an actual misuse of her personal data. Now, there's no federal statutory privacy regime in the U.S., so most plaintiffs bring a patchwork of state common law tort and contract claims. And proof of damages is an essential element of these common law claims. Plaintiffs have advanced a number of theories of harm that courts in the U.S. are still grappling with, and these include actual identity theft, of course, an elevated risk of identity theft, cost to mitigate the risk of identity theft, loss of control of personal data and diminished value of personal information, and loss of the benefit of the bargain, meaning that the plaintiff claims that he overpaid for the defendant's service because part of the service included keeping the plaintiff's data safe. Now, in a class action, the plaintiff seeking to represent the class must also show that the alleged injury is capable of common proof for the whole class. And this is difficult to do because some injuries, such as worry or anxiety about the threat of future identity theft, are subjective in nature and they're not common to the whole class. Some people will get a data breach notice in the mail and just ignore it. So defendants are having some success in the U.S. in fighting off class certification on this basis. And class certification in the U.S. is really the ballgame. Once a class is certified, settlement tends to follow because the company's exposure is so large. So in the U.S., this seems to be a fairly clear split between claims for material damages, so the cost to mitigate an identity theft, and those for non-material damages, i.e. loss of control data, for example. Is this the same in Europe, Rachel? 
I think it's it's interesting hearing Julie talk about um, the development in the US and I, and there have been a lot more cases in that here and we're still starting to see um, sort of a more nascent stage of development in the UK and Europe. But the starting position in the GDPR is that a claim for compensation can be brought for any material or non-material damage as a result of an infringement of the GDPR. So we're looking there at not only financial loss, but also things like distress without having to prove financial loss. But it's worth just stepping back um, a moment, uh, particularly in the case of the UK, uh, and recognising there are two really distinct types of class actions that can be brought in the UK. Um, and because their procedural requirements can have an impact on the type of loss or damage which is claimed. So we've got the opt-in style action in which individuals need to take positive steps in order to join the action and be identified in the claim, something like a group litigation order. And there's also the opt-out style action where claimants who fall within the relevant class of individuals as it's described in the action are automatically included unless they opt out. And broadly speaking, under a group litigation order, a GLO style claim, you wouldn't need to have the same damage across the claim, but in a representative action, you do. So we find that the GLO type actions naturally tend to lend themselves more to um, the type of damages that might vary across a class, such as financial loss or distress. You know, as, as Julie mentioned, some people just ignore the mail that says that their data has been affected in a data breach, uh, and, and, and others won't. And so therefore, there's a natural variation across the class. For representative actions, the procedural requirement is that the members of the class have the same interest. And until recently, This has been fairly strictly interpreted by the court. And I think this is where it gets really interesting at the moment in the UK. So the current debate in the context of the representative action in the UK is whether a non-material loss can include a loss of control of data, even without having to demonstrate uh, financial loss or distress. And this is one of the key issues that's being looked at in the case of Lloyd and Google, which is a misuse of data case on its way to the Supreme Court. So as well as setting the bar low for claims under data protection legislation, a mere loss of control of data claim potentially opens up a new route for mass claims under the representative action, which is otherwise difficult to to use where you have financial loss or distress because those types of damage vary so much across the class. I also was speaking to Mark, who you heard on the last podcast about the situation in continental Europe. And there have been some interesting decisions in the lower courts um, across Germany and also in the Netherlands looking at loss of control of data. So it's going to be interesting to see how these various cases coming up against the same sorts of issues develop. So it sounds like both in the US and, and indeed also in the UK and potentially also across Europe, there are not only issues here about how claimants would need to demonstrate their loss, but also the answer to those questions may well affect the ability of claimants to bring claims by way of class action or some other form of of collective action like representative actions in the UK. Jonathan, in Asia, I think from our last session, you identified that, that class actions were something that were less frequently brought, less frequently seen in, in Asia. But, but how does the issue of loss been addressed in Asia? Yeah, I mean, I've enjoyed listening to, to, to both what Julie and um, Rachel have talked about, Jeff, because I think we've got 
um, a, a position in Asia that's probably a little bit closer to what Julie talked about in the US and certainly in the common law jurisdictions. And maybe that contrasts the GDPR position that, that Rachel talked about. But in the common law jurisdictions, I think we're still quite closely wedded to this concept of proof of damages that Julie mentioned. You know, there's still a very strong focus on material damage and claims. Uh, and I think non-material damages is one which is much more likely to be difficult um, to claim in places like Hong Kong and Singapore. You know, heads of claims such as distress and emotional injury would not generally be well received by the courts in those jurisdictions, not least because I think there's uh, a more traditional common law view in um, these jurisdictions of those types of damages. Now, that's the, I think that there's a slight difference with the way civil law jurisdictions, the key civil law jurisdictions in Asia work, and China and Japan, I think, are two good examples. Um, the, the damages rules in those jurisdictions are a little bit more broad brush. So, um, you know, in, in Japan, for example, distress would potentially give rise to damages. But I think as a general proposition, the damages in those jurisdictions, in civil law jurisdictions, is going to be lower and still, I think, trickier than um, appears to be the case under the GDPR or I think potentially under the, the Lloyd and Google test, which Rachel mentioned. So, so really where we are in Asia, I think, is we're slightly restricted by judicial practice and tradition. And court order damages in Asia have traditionally been very low. And um, I think the courts would still be looking to proof of damages in order to quantify the amount of damages that data subjects will be able to recover in a data breach situation. It is, there's also a little bit of a chicken and egg, I think, to the way things are working in Asia. Uh, because of the traditionally um, low damages, because um, we don't have in many jurisdictions a robust class action um, legal framework, we don't really have the consumer rights groups um, or the strong plaintiff bar, which you, you might see in other jurisdictions. And so really what we're, we're talking about in, I think, with the exception of Australia and Asia, is um, a relatively low risk of um, significant damages being awarded in a class action claim. Um, but as I mentioned in the first session, you know, that could change, particularly with regulators paying catch up with their international counterparts and potentially, I think, being a catalyst for, the, for class action claims to be brought in APAC. Thanks, Jonathan. J Julie, just wanted to turn to you finally to, to just see whether in the US there's been any attempt by the legislature to, to step in and try to clarify what might amount to recoverable damages in a data breach case? So there's no statutory, federal statutory data privacy regime in the US and the likelihood of one being adopted in the near future is fairly low. But California has adopted a Consumer Privacy Act or the CCPA and this went into effect this summer. This law applies to certain businesses who meet certain thresholds and collect data from California residents. And under the act, firms can be liable for statutory damages of $100 to $750 per consumer per incident or actual damages, whichever is greater. Now, because there's no ceiling on the number of CCPA violations, the financial impact of the law or for not complying with that law can be substantial. Now, the law has only been in effect for a few months, so it's definitely something to keep an eye on and to keep an eye on whether other states follow in California's footsteps. 
That's an interesting development. So I hope you found these two podcasts helpful. I think it's clear that data breach instances are going to continue. I think it's obvious from our first podcast that the investigations conducted by regulators can be significant in the way in which claims are brought and whether they are brought. However, determinations around liability by regulators aren't necessarily binding on courts and may well be open to challenge in legal proceedings. I think it's also clear that the whole area of what is recoverable loss and the amount of loss that can be recovered is is, is very much at the early stages of development. And how the law does develop in those areas may well both be significant as to the likelihood of claims being brought and indeed, and perhaps most importantly, whether those claims can be brought by way of class or collective actions. So this leaves me to say thank you for joining us on this podcast and thank you for our speakers today. Goodbye.